We now return to Bringing Light into Darkness, our series of shows on addictive culture, and we return to our discussion about blood alcohol concentration levels. And since we're still on the topic of BAC, um, I also wanted to talk about, because alcohol, especially once you're a heavy drinker, you kind of don't know when to stop, and it takes more alcohol to um, feel the same kind of psychological effects that you might have years before this misuse started. So I wanted to talk about, is there a lethal dose for uh, drinking alcohol, and can you slip into a coma when it comes to alcohol? Yeah, well, that's really an important health question that people should be very, very clear about. We've lost so many people to alcohol overdose, and that's because there is a lethal Mm -hmm. dose. And what the lethal dose means, it's really interesting. We develop tolerance to all drugs, okay, as Mm -hmm. as we use them. But we do not develop tolerance to the lethal level when it comes to alcohol, okay? So even if I'm a raging alcoholic and you are more of a younger, novice, you know, heavy drinker on weekends but hardly drink, even though we have a different tolerance to alcohol based on that experience, our lethal amount would be about the same. In fact, what they call, mm-hmm. they, there's a term, it's called the LD50, All drugs, prescription drugs as well, often during their clinical trials, the safety margin of a drug is measured by the difference between the LD50 and the ED50. In other words, the difference between the lethal dose and the effective dose. And the ED50 means the effective dose. The effective dose for 50% of the people. So let's say I'm inventing, have invented a a headache powder, okay? And Mm -hmm. and 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 this is how I might present this in a class. I say, let's say we've got 25 people in this class. And I say, I will give you all a couple hundred bucks to participate in my study. Will you do it? And I force them to say, yeah, I'll do it. Okay. All right. So now we got everybody. So, okay. The first thing is I want to find out what the ED50 of my headache powder is, the effective dose. So all of y'all will probably have headaches by now from listening to me talk so much. And I am going to give you all 250 milligrams of this headache powder, and lo and behold, 50% of y'all, the headache goes away, and 50% of y'all still have the headache. I now know what my Mm -hmm. ED50 is, okay? Now, Mm -hmm. I paid you 200, so I also want you to do this other part of this study. That's the LD50, and that will be, I'm going to give you 5,000 milligrams of my headache powder, and lo and behold, half of you will die, and I get my money back, and half of you will survive, and I will know what my LD50 mm-hmm. is, okay? So that gives the understanding of what effective dose and LD means. Now, for alcohol, as we said, even though someone may be a raging alcoholic, their LD50 is going to be about the same. In other words, if you get someone up to a 0.40 BAC, you would expect half of those people to die. That's what the LD50 right. is for alcohol. Now, the comatose 50 would be like a 0.30, okay? Mm-hmm. And anyone that's drinking to that level to begin with, it, it, that's an incredible tolerance, which we, which is, indicates a big red flag anyhow. Right. But at the same time, by, most people's bodies will shut down and they will pass out way before all of that occurs and such. But that's what the LD and the ED50 means. Um, the, the other thing, just real quick, is uh-huh. it's interesting that alcohol back in the, you know, you've seen it in some of the old movies, it used to be an anesthetic, okay? 
right. in other words, you know, you would do the old, we got to take this bullet out of your arm, you know, here, take a bunch of whiskey and put the stick in your mouth and we'll <laughs> pull it out and you won't, it won't hurt as much if you drink. Well, right. the effective dose for alcohol becoming a good anesthetic is very, very close to the lethal dose. Okay. Right. So when you go into your hospital for surgery, they don't say, would you like an anesthesia or four more martinis? <laughs> they they, they right. use an anesthesia because the anesthesia has yeah. a much greater margin of safety, right? It's effective mm-hmm. at a much, much lower rate than the alcohol would be, right? And then if everything in between. So we long, long since left alcohol as an anesthetic. Yeah, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, now I want to switch over a little bit to just talking about substance use disorders because, you know, we've been discussing this for the past four weeks, really, but and realized how many, um, like, there's so many factors involved in developing kind of reliance on substances. And so I wanted to go over those factors um, and uh, probability. And so what are the probabilities of developing a need for a substance and that turning into a substance disorder? Yeah. So, you know, we've talked about chemical dependency quite a bit, as you've just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important to indicate that it is a multifactorial disorder. And what does that mean? Well, multifactorial just means many factors. So if right. you were to look at the factors that influence the probability that I might become alcoholic or chemically dependent or not. That's what I wanted to address for folks. So what factors are involved that point to the possibility of what probability I will have of developing a chemical dependency? The one that has the greatest weight, although they all are significant, is genetic predisposition. Mm -hmm. So for instance, this is not a surprise to most people, but depending on if I have family history of alcohol, like, like let's say my dad is alcoholic. If my dad is alcoholic, does that mean I'm going to become alcoholic? Actually, the science says not necessarily, but it does mean that the chances that I become alcoholic are higher than if I did not have that family history. Okay, that's one, right. that's one thing. And so one of the deals that I just wanted to go to real quick on this is, you know, I always thought, well, how do they know? If it's a genetic predisposition or I'm just around my dad all the time who's such a heavy drinker. Right. His, I was about to mention the nature and nurture aspect of Right, that. right. So they actually did twin studies, okay? And mm-hmm. I, I presume they're with identical with identical types of genetic twins, but I, I don't have that research right in front of me, but I remember these studies very well. And these were adoption studies. So let's say you had an identical twin sister, let's say, and your parents, for whatever reasons, you both were adopted into different homes, okay? And so then now you have the same genetic profile and you both have the same genetic history of whether or not your dad and mom are alcoholic or not. And now they somehow were able to look at those people growing up in heavy drinking families versus more responsible drinking families, right? And they saw right. that those people in the heavy drinking fam- the families versus the new these other families, that the rates were about the same. What that told them was that, yeah, there is a genetic predisposition, despite the fact that to this date they have not isolated a specific gene. But it is not to deny that the environment plays a significant influence too. Because sometimes a disorder will not manifest itself even though you're genetically preloaded if the environmental factors are not triggering it. You're not in that environment right. that might, might trigger it. So the, what they did find, which I think is interesting, is that with the alcohol genetic predisposition, that 
those people that had closer blood lineage had higher rates of probability. In other words, let's say I have family history mm-hmm. and you have family history, but my family history is my dad and my sister. That's direct blood lineage, okay? Your blood history is your aunt and your cousin, you know? That's not, mm-hmm. that's indirect, right? But it is family history. Well, your chances of developing alcoholism or chemical dependency are, are higher than if you had no family history, but they're not as high as mine because mine's a more direct blood lineage. So the direct blood lineage part plays a role as well. So that's one factor. Uh, and we'll move mm-hmm. to these others pretty quickly here because that's the one that generally takes the most time to, to uh, qualify. But also age of onset. There was Bridget Grant and Dawson, I think that was her first name, but they did some research back in 1997. And we talked about this briefly, but I just wanted to cite this particular study because it's been replicated by other studies. Anyhow, so in this Dawson study, the age of onset and risk, what they did, and we've talked about this, is that they examined the fact that young people's brains, we know, are not fully developed until about age 20, 21. And so young people who began drinking before age 15 were actually, they found four times more likely to develop an alcohol dependence than those that waited until age 21, okay, to start drinking. They also found that more than 40% of persons who began drinking before 15 became alcohol dependent. So the the rate was four out of 10, which means you had more than a 50% chance of still not becoming alcoholic, okay, Uh, even though you started drinking at a young age. So that's, of course, compared to about 10% which makes it four times greater. They also went on to show that about 25% of those that began drinking at age, I think, 16, developed the disorder. So, you know, even if you're a parent and you can delay the initiation of alcohol and drug Mm -hmm. use, that's really helpful for the disposition of your kids. And the same results came from studies on marijuana and early initiation. It was not as great, but it was like a two to three times greater chance if you started smoking pot at a very young age rather than than those that waited until age 21. So I, I think that's an important finding. They don't know what it is, but they just, all these studies indicate that Clearly, the brain, as it matures, apparently develops some type of defensive capabilities that it doesn't have or doesn't have as great amount of at that earlier age. So that's, that's the second factor, the, the age of onset. So we got genetic predisposition, age of onset, uh, the environment, you know, the drug availability. If, mm-hmm. you're, if you grow up in an environment which, which, you know, you walk out the front door and there's drugs at the corner and all of that, guess what? You know, the chances are you may be experimenting it with versus an environment that does not have that access as readily can obviously in many different environments and socioeconomic areas of our urban cities those challenges become particularly pernicious the culture which is different from environment it's the messaging Mm -hmm. you know we talked about this that promotes medicating all discomfort don't ever feel any discomfort well your body speaks to you through pain and discomfort. Now, you should medicate exactly. severe discomfort, but if it's not severe, it's a way your body speaks to you. And not to knee-jerk reach for some pill. We live in a culture that it used to be you're not allowed to advertise prescription drugs, okay? And there's a good reason mm-hmm. for that, I think. It's because it's a health deal between you and your doctor. But now, with the influence of advertising and all that, we're going into our doctors mm-hmm. and telling our doctors what to prescribe us, and many doctors will 
go along with that in order to maintain their relationship and their populations of patients, I would suspect. But culture, it can be on TV and in movies. You know, we were told, like, when you run into a problem, you take a drink. And that's what we get taught. So does that influence more use? And usually if you're drinking in response to a problem, it, it can create the environment in which I have a higher chance of developing a problem. And then culture can also portray movies and TV as intoxication as fun and funny and you know, you don't see people even doing. glamorous sometimes, and, and, especially with all these celebrities advertising. You know, Jack Daniels or uh, Jim Beam. Yeah, absolutely. You know? To be hip, slick, and cool is more important than anything else, particularly for younger people, but for all of us. So those right. influences are huge. Frequency and quantity. Obviously, the more I use of a drug and the more frequently I use it, that can precipitate the problem. Well, that's a factor. Okay, and then also the last couple. One is the mode of administration. So let's just take cocaine, for example. Mm -hmm. If you are snorting cocaine, okay, and and when I say snorting, I mean encephalating. You're you're ingesting Mm -hmm. cocaine through the, the capillaries of blood in your nose, which is an efficient mode of accessing your bloodstream for not all drugs, but certainly for powdered cocaine it is. And you can still develop an addiction, and it'll probably take, you can plot out with the average amount of time that those that got addicted, what that was, and maybe it was some 90 days or so, if my memory serves me right. But then if you look at smoking cocaine, in other words, there's a drug called crack cocaine. Cocaine Mm -hmm. itself, its vaporization point, if you were to try to combust it, the temperature is so high that you could not smoke it. So you chemically change it into a form called crack that brings down that vaporization point. Now you can smoke it. And we've been talking over the last few shows, for those that have been listening, and they know now that the fastest delivery system to the brain is not IV, although it's very, very, very quick, but it's smoking, right? So now I'm smoking a drug, namely cocaine, and it's reaching my brain much, much faster than if I'm snorting it, which is not healthy, uh, but less addictive potential. And so the delivery system to the brain is so quick and in so much. So it also is a factor in determining and influencing whether I will become addicted or not. And then we have our individual biochemistry we were talking about earlier, right? So some, okay. some people have died from smoking cocaine on one of the first times they tried it. And what happens is, is that the cocaine can get into the brain and there's a part of the brain that sends electrical messages to your heart. Your heart mm-hmm. beats at a certain rate based on a brain stem. I believe it's a brain stem generated electrical messaging. Mm-hmm. In fact, some people have pacemakers, right? That's because that messaging right. is not what it should be. As we get older, it might get challenged, so they give you a pacemaker. But these people, they get this ventricular fibrillation and death from smoking cocaine, or some people, I'm sure, can get it from other ways of ingesting cocaine. But there's a much smaller subset of people. It occurs because of this of this dysfunctional effect on this electrical messaging from your brain mm-hmm. to your heart. So the mode of administration, the the, the the means the rewarding effects are going to be much greater. Okay, by the way, and the last thing is specifically that the reinforcing effects of a drug. You take cocaine and you compare that to alcohol. Both are rewarding, but cocaine is much more or significantly more rewarding. So you look at all of these different interact, going back to our original thing, a multifactorial disorder, that chemical dependency is a multifactorial disorder. There are many factors that are involved that shape 
the probability. They do not predetermine I will become or not become, but they shape the probability, and they are genetic predisposition, age of onset, environment, culture, frequency and quantity, mode of administration, and the reinforcing effects of the drug. Yeah, thank you for that. That was very concise. Well, okay, so we're slowly running out of time, and I don't want to end this conversation on a bad or pessimistic note. So given all these factors, I know that changing the culture around substance use will probably take longer than we want it to. But given all these factors, what can we do to construct kind of healthier social prevention strategies and or at least like influence healthier decision making for the ones we love and for people that we care about and for the general populace? Yeah, I think that goes to cultural issues, right? I I just wanted to indicate you have a culture in which we said some two thirds of the public drink once a year or more often which means you know, close to a third do not drink regularly mm-hmm. at all. You have, out of the two-thirds that drank, we, we indicated that close to 10% of those two-thirds purchase close to half of all alcohol. So the industry itself, when they say no one to say when, they don't want you to stop drinking if you have a drinking problem. If everyone that had a drinking problem stopped drinking, they would lose all sorts of revenue, right? But a culture that allows the advertising and those types of things... Mm-hmm. It, is not a healthy one. This is why we have adopted the term addictive culture, because addiction does not occur in a vacuum. It occurs in a cultural setting that exert influences. And because in our addictive culture, it promotes profit over our collective health interests as U.S. citizens. There are some sectors of a democracy that need to be completely insulated from the market-driven economy. And one of them, I believe, is around health and health care. Think about it. Drug overdose deaths in the United States have topped 100,000 for the first time over a 12-month period in U.S. history. This according to 2021 data from a CDC report, the vast majority of which were opioid overdoses. While the major focus of the cause of these opioid deaths has been on the pandemic and synthetic narcotics like fentanyl, which no doubt both played roles, But as a result of that focus, the role of pharmaceutical companies in their misbranding and minimizing the dangers of addiction potential of their drugs and U.S. government agencies' complicit silence that enabled this general ignorance is largely ignored and swept under the rug. The troubling questions are not asked by our media, which we have documented in past shows, to also have been largely monopolized within our market-driven economy. Why is it not common knowledge that as recently as 2020, reputable health authorities were reporting that the United States, quote, makes up 4.4% of the world population and consumes over 80% of the world's opioids, and that, quote, the U.S. consumes approximately 99% of the world's hydrocodone supply. Hydrocodone, of course, is Vicodin. And that two-thirds of the world's illicit drug supply is consumed by the United States. Or that 2013 data reported by the National Institute of Health indicated that about 80% of people who use heroin first misuse prescription opioids, drawing a straight line from pharmaceutical companies profiteering to tens of thousands of opiate overdoses in a single year. Is this all absent from common knowledge because multinational pharma companies' monies and influence in the pursuit of profit trumps the democratic health welfare of all U.S. citizens? It's something to think about. 
if your real interest is for a healthy democracy and a responsible U.S. government. On top of that cultural issue there, before I learned to drive, I had to take a driver's ed class, and then I had to go drive around with a, with a driving trainer, and then I had to take a written test and a, and a driving test. And I would suggest that a responsible culture for us to become responsible would be the same thing for alcohol and other drugs, that you go through a series of classes or information that, we, that we've just completed in these last four classes. Now you know so much more about brain ecology and all of these other things that, in which these drugs have their effect, and then you can make decisions that are much better informed. And I would guarantee you there would be less folks that would be abusing alcohol and other drugs at the rate that we have in our culture. So I think that is an important strategy. The other thing is in culture, we, as you, I thought, put it very well, we glamorize drugs. Now, there there are cultural factors that are correlated with low rates of of chemical dependency, actually. Things like when children are introduced to small diluted amounts of alcohol within a strong family context. If I just go off the rails for a minute here too, it reminds me of many of the indigenous peoples, they used to use Mm -hmm. hallucinogenic drugs, not in an immoderate way and just a party and that type of thing, but it was heavily connected to cultural tradition and religious. Right, uh, spirituality. Thank you. And those types of things. And it was around those issues and you didn't find the rates of developing really irresponsible use patterns until they got westernized, right? Uh, But also getting back to this list of other factors that are correlated with low rates of chemical dependency, the parents, they serve as a good role model by drinking alcohol in a non-abusive manner. You know, you don't don't drink to get intoxicated. Getting back to our definition of a social drinker is social drinkers where the drinking is part of the social activity, but the major social activity is to be with and around and share time and enjoy the company of friends. Right. When, when the alcohol becomes the main feature, uh, who can drink the most? And regularly drinking to intoxication, all of this type of stuff, that's not a healthy cultural factor. And intoxication is neither accepted, tolerated, nor is it considered funny. That would be a cultural factor. And then just a couple of more, but where norms, when, where, and how to drink are well understood, and that drinking is not considered a, a pathway to adulthood to prove yourself that you're an adult. Abstinence right. is accepted and not ridiculed. And it, uh, again, is in conjunction with other activities and is not the primary activity in and of itself. But I would say that those all all factors that, that would be considered appropriate in this cultural thing. The last thing I just wanted to add, if I could, Pat, was yeah, getting, getting back to the genetic predisposition part. It, it can manifest itself in other ways, too. I found there was this guy, Shuckett, and, and an eight-year follow-up we did with some 450 sons of alcoholics. This is a little dated, but I think it's stood the test of time with other studies. But mm-hmm. what they looked at is they looked at what was called the level of response. So you've heard of biofeedback, right? Just yeah. real quickly, because I know we're just about out of time. But we could put muscle sensors on your muscles, and I could give you a drink of alcohol, right? And it would show me how much muscle relaxation you get from that drink. Okay. Well, they found when they did this with sons of alcoholics versus those people that were not with that family history, they found that the reinforcing effects, there was significantly more muscle relaxation in the sons of alcoholics. Okay. So for whatever genetically preloaded, they're getting a, a more positive reinforcing effect. And so that again, points back to this genetic predisposition theory. 
But we're about out of time, so I'm going to let you wrap it up. Thank you so much for leading us through this discussion. Yeah, and thank you for the past few weeks. I believe this will be our last episode in our mini-series. Yeah, until we have another one. Perfect. (laughs) Well, I look forward to that. So yeah, thank you for this discussion, and I'm glad that we wrapped this up. Speaking about how we can change things and how we can talk about these things and not kind of, you know, push it under the rug because... Like I mentioned at the beginning of the series, I think we often avoid these discussions or look at these discussions with, like, a sense of shame or, you know, look at people with um, chemical dependency and shame them rather than inform them. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. So this was our mini-series, Our Addictive Culture, Chemical Use and Misuse and the Magical Host, the Human Brain and Body. This will be the last episode of the series for now. And, yeah, so thank you, Pedro, and I hope we can do this again soon. Yeah, and if we could just end the show, I, I just wanted to share that people have questions or comments that they want more information on. They could just send it to our email address, pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. And a big shout out and thanks to you, Pat, for an outstanding job of preparing yourself for these multiple shows and look forward to our continued conversations. So thanks, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Okay, ciao. Coming up next, do not go anywhere unless you're not on koop.org right now. Switch on over to the internet if you're on the FM dial to hear Emo Diaries with co-op's very own Stephanie at the Disco. I can't wait. And we go out as we do every week with Land of Naivety. Oh,